Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with experts and entrepreneurs working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this episode, we have a slightly different format featuring six panelists speaking about financing energy access. They introduce themselves during the course of the conversation, so we'll leave introductions to them shortly, but we cover a wide range of topics around how best to finance energy access opportunities, looking at results-based financing options, loans, equity, debt, government funding, project development, and much more. We hope you enjoy this episode. I'm really excited to be moderating this very interesting topic with a group of really distinguished guests. So thank you all for joining us. And without further ado, I'd like to pass it over to our panelists. If you could please take one to two minutes to introduce yourselves and your organization. And since we're talking about financing energy access in this session, um, please provide also a quick overview of how your company currently finances or helps to support financing for deployment of off-grid energy projects. So I think Amory was my first on the list of the panelists. We have Amory Fastenuckles, who's the Chief Marketing Officer at Beatbox. Thanks a lot, Eugene. Thanks a lot, uh, everyone, for organizing this uh, this great event. Good in the the current context of 26. Um, so yeah, my name is Amory. I'm uh, the chief marketing officer of Bbox. We basically finance small solar home systems for end users. Uh, a lot of our service is based on longer payment plans or even higher purchasing agreements up to 10 years, from one year to 10 years. And that really is what enables customers in remote areas in Africa mostly to get access to electricity because those systems are fine. And so uh, the financing aspect is really critical to, uh, to our business. Uh, and, uh, and I think we actually do a lot more on financing than on solar and the technical part. With regards to where we get most of our finance, uh, I think it's still quite a mix. On one side, you have everything that is debt that I think can be is a mix of local debt and then you know cent- more central facility uh, that exist. And then obviously we have some banks or lenders that have more risk appetite. Well, for example, Nitio is a good example of a good and forward-thinking uh, lender. Uh, we've also had some success even with crowdfunding. And then on the other side, we get some funding from subsidies that are set up by government in partnership with the World Bank, and then also other sort of subsidies like carbon credit, for example. Great. Thank you, Amory. And next we have Michael Sudakasa, who is the CEO of Africa Business Group. Michael, if you could please introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks. And uh, good afternoon, everyone from Johannesburg, evening on our side of the of the lake. Africa Business Group is actually an economic development firm. I'm actually a commercial attorney by training and began my work in the renewable energy space around looking at the regulatory and the policy side. But germane to our conversation this evening, we actually serve as the South Africa, Eswatini, and Lesotho country coordinator for the private finance advisory network. So in that regard, we're a facilitator of finance. So we serve a role similar to an accelerator or a corporate financier, and we work with project developers and help them bring their projects to financial close. We do this typically through an open call. So every quarter and at different times, we will amplify the call. So for example, uh, on October 31st, we had 
a call close that focused on agriculture and the nexus with renewable energy. So we, we do that periodically to, to get different projects in. And then we review those projects. And over a period of about six months, we actually take the project developer through a process of improving their financials, improving their business model, helping them with the packaging. The, the whole foundation of, of PFAN was that you had a situation, and PFAN was founded in 2006, where you had project developers saying that they couldn't really find capital. And then you had those with capital saying, but we can't find good projects. So in many ways, PFAN is really stepping into that missing middle and bringing the the stakeholders together. And we actually consistently are looking for new pools of capital that come to market. And we're finding in the last 24 months, I mean, COVID notwithstanding, you have new funds, new facilities that are being made available. And so we're helping the project developers identify these pools of capital and and better understand how to position themselves to secure that capital. So for us, a win is actually reducing carbon and at the same time bringing entrepreneurs who are focused on energy and, and clean technologies to success. And we're operating across the continent. As I mentioned, our firm is based here in South Africa and Southern Africa, but PFAN is operating across the Sub-Saharan African region, South America, and in Asia. And it's supported by UNIDO and the Renewable Energy Energy Efficiency Partnership. Fantastic. Thank I'll you, Michael. There. Yeah. That's great. I'm sure we'll dig into that a lot more in the coming conversation. But next on our list, we have Emily McAteer, who is the founder and CEO of Odyssey Energy Solutions. Over to you, Emily. Thanks. Good morning or good afternoon, everyone. I'm joining from Colorado, so not too far away from most of the folks um, listening in today. I'm I'm Emily McAteer. I'm CEO of Odyssey Energy Solutions, and we are a digital technology firm with the mission of catalyzing the deployment of distributed renewable energy assets globally. We have a, a set of digital tools that really span kind of the life cycle of uh, project development. So from the early stages of planning, through financing, through building projects, and then finally operating systems as well. Happy to talk a lot more about kind of what we do on the finance side, but that's a big piece of our work. We have a finance transaction platform with the goal of catalyzing many different types of finance into the DRE sector, all with the sort of fundamental hypothesis that it's a very different paradigm putting capital into a portfolio of small DRE projects versus, you know, traditional energy infrastructure financing, which is, you know, big projects. And because that's such a different paradigm, digital technologies and, and particularly data technologies can be very useful in streamlining that process. We have all different types of capital in our platform. We manage large development finance institutions, such as uh, World Bank programs that are working with governments in Africa to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars into solar home systems and mini grids across the continent. We have commercial investors that are managing infrastructure funds and refinancing portfolios of distributed energy assets, either commercial industrial applications or mini grids. We have equipment financing facilities on our platform that are looking to solve the working capital challenges that project developers face in getting projects off the ground. Yeah, so excited to kind of talk about our experiences with each of those types of finance, but I'll I'll stop there for now. Great. Thank you, Emily. And next we have Carl Scarry, who's the Managing Director of Partnerships and Strategy at Delight. 
Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Carl Scarry. I'm Managing Director of Global Partnerships and Strategy at Delight. Delight is a social enterprise that was actually founded by a few Stanford Graduate School business students out of their design school class back in 2006. The original founding mission of the company was to eradicate the kerosene lantern. So most people know Delight for our solar lantern offerings, and they think of us as a, a solar lantern company. However, back in 2014, we expanded our product line into much larger products, solar home systems that could power, you know, three to five lights. They could power a TV, a fan, other 12 volt appliances. And since then, we've also added things like phones to our product offering. So we've really expanded our product offering quite a bit. And what we found is as we got to more and more expensive products, anything above $30 retail needed to be financed for customers. And in places like India, there were existing options out there for financing through the local microfinance institutions. So we would just work with the microfinance institutions in India to finance those larger purchases for customers. However, in Africa, the microfinance institutions were not really interested in, in financing products. And so a lot of companies, BBOX as well, got into providing financing ourselves. So our, our financing works a little bit differently from BBOXs in that we do shorter payment periods. Our loans are typically anywhere from nine months all the way up to 18 months, depending on the product. And you know they're, they're set up as payment plans. People pay through mobile money. It's all tech-enabled. We have a locking mechanism. So they'll receive an unlock token when they make their mobile money payment, and they'll key it into a keypad on their, their solar home system to unlock the product. And in terms of where we get the, the capital in order to finance these products for customers, early on, it was coming from corporate debt. So we had quite a bit of on-balance sheet corporate debt that we had raised, and then obviously the equity that we needed to raise in order to, to raise that corporate debt. But more recently, we've created an off-balance sheet financing facility where essentially we are selling off the receivables to this SPV that pays us a certain percentage of the face value of those contracts up front. And then the payments that we receive from customers, we transfer directly through to that facility. So that's been kind of a game changer for us and it has allowed us to move away from needing to raise rounds of equity kind of constantly, the fundraising treadmill, we call it, where as soon as you finish an equity round and, and the debt round associated with it, you know, you've you've gone through that capital, you've you've spent it financing products for your customers, and you have to do another equity round. By transitioning to this off-balance sheet financing facility, that facility is able to rotate and revolve and, and keep purchasing new receivables from customers. So it's really allowed us to get off of that that financing treadmill, um, as we call it. Great. Thank you, Carl. And last but by no means least, we have Raga Sachdeva, who is the chief investment officer at Nithio. Thanks, Eugene. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Good afternoon. I'm from Washington, D.C. My name is Raghav Sachteva, and I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Nithio. So what we do at Nithio is we help finance companies operating in the off-grid solar home system and the productive use sector in Africa. So these are companies similar to B-Box and Daylight uh, that provide solar home systems to customers but then get repaid over time with repayment tenors varying from, from nine months to 36 months or even more in cases. And as a result, what happens is that these operators, as we call them, have receivables from 
hundreds of thousands of African consumers who don't really have any credit score or any financial footprint in many cases. So what Netio does is we help facilitate this financing to operators in two ways. One, directly through our financial intermediary, which we call Nithyo FI. Uh, Nithyo FI has raised capital from various institutional investors, ranging from development finance institutions such as the USDFC or other development players like FSD Africa, Electrify, and from commercial players. So our anchor investor is the private equity fund PPG through its impact arm called the RISE Fund. Uh, and Nithyo FI provides direct debt capital to to operators. Uh, And the other way we help support financing in the sector is by enabling other investors invest in the sector by providing credit risk assessments of these African consumers, which we do through our risk analytics engine. And I can get into more detail in that. Thanks for having me here. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone here for joining our panel today. So I think it's going to be a great discussion. We've heard a lot already about the different financing mechanisms ranging from equity, debt, SPVs, subsidies, crowdfunding as well. So it'll be great to, to dive into um, more detail on each of those topics. So it seems as though we've gotten a pretty good overview of which of the tools each of you have used Is there anything that we haven't discussed so far that we haven't mentioned with regards to financial tools that have been successful, that have been applied to energy access? And of the tools that currently exist, which are the ones that you think might be critical going forward? So perhaps if I could start with Michael, it would be great if you could maybe provide any additional background. And if anyone else on the panel would like to raise their hands to go next, that'd be a great way to to help us organize the, the discussion. Great. Well, what, what I found interesting about the comments of my colleagues is the increasing role that technology is playing. One of the areas that colleagues hadn't mentioned, but in the last six months have kind of come to my attention and has piqued my attention is the use of blockchain in this space. And, and so it's, it's very early, but I think that, that it has uh, potential because that's a, a technology that is coming to the continent slowly. But if you look at what's happening in terms of payment systems, a lot of the largest capitalizations of new companies are found in fintech. And so I could see that being used as a way to mobilize greater capital. The other area that I think is key is also tools that mobilize domestic capital. So local currency, because a lot of the transactions have been in dollars and euros and the challenges that those are you find the currency that people are living in depreciating to those currencies. And so it's very difficult to get your payback if the currency that your customers are paying you in is always declining to the the, the debt that you have or the equity uh, hurdle that your, your, your investors want. So those are two areas. Now, from a PFAN standpoint, we're actually always looking for commercial transactions. And so we, we look for debt, we look for equity, you can do a lot in terms of dicing and, and slicing your, your debt to become equity. We don't do grants, but when you talk about basic rural electrification, I found that it's critical that you have grants. It really, I don't know how, you know, it, it can be done without that. And so unf- unfairly, I feel like at times there's this thought that in Africa, 
the path towards rural electrification should be purely commercial, which is different than any other uh, region around the world. It has always been a lot of subsidy, a lot of government support, and then you prove concept, and now you can bring in private capital. But there's a step. Why I mention that is that the other piece that we haven't really talked about, which I think is critical, is productive use of energy and, and the funding. Some of my colleagues have talked about appliances and financing those. But, but to me, that's a huge part. I mean, from a, from a rural electrification standpoint, spent a lot of time focusing on how many grids can play more of a role, but then how can they be financed? And, and to me, that demand challenge, meaning that if you don't have off takers, who will actually pay the tariff that's needed and, and pay a fee that will allow you to have a cost-reflective tariff, it's very difficult to, to work in that space. So just uh, last week, the Power and Renewable Energy Opportunities Program, PRIO, Carbon Trust is supporting that, had a launch of a report that they did saying that it will take $120 billion a year to fund productive use to actually drive rural electrification now. I'd love to hear the, the, the thoughts of my colleagues on the panel, because when you add that to the $40 billion a year that's needed, that's been estimated just for sustainable energy for all to achieve by 2030, it's a lot. And so we're going to have to have uh, very creative ways to, to raise capital. The last point that I'll mention is that my thought is that there's going to be a need to have the productive use community, the off-grid rural electrification community, and the agricultural sector start trying to harness their asks for capital a bit more. Because on the agricultural side, which is where we do a lot of work, the African Development Bank estimates that you need 20 to 30 billion just for the basically small and micro agriculturalists on the continent. So if, if there was a way to leverage the three areas, that's how, and that's part of the work that, that we do is looking to craft, again, agriculture, productive uses in agriculture, and then implements equipment that will provide electrification, bring those together and fund it. I'll stop. <laughs> Thank I you, Michael. So I think you really expanded the conversation already. We've got blockchain in there. We've got local financing mechanisms, and we've also got productive use. Um, and those are all great topics to dive into. Carl, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I just wanted to jump on what, what Michael was saying about this idea of, of subsidy. It's it's kind of crazy to think that we expect the the poorest of the poor in a lot of these countries to pay full price for their energy when all of the existing on-grid customers are, are heavily subsidized today on the continent. All the utilities are losing money. They're propped up by the governments. So to give essentially that subsidy to the wealthier on-grid populations and tell the, the off-grid populations you have to pay full price for your energy seems quite uh, regressive to me. And so, you know, if you look at the World Bank created a multi-tier framework for levels of energy access. So there's tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four, tier five. A tier one energy access just refers to the ability to power, let's say, three lights and have mobile charging. It's pretty basic, but a lot of people don't have that today. When we talk about off-grid populations, we're talking about people who don't even have that. And when you look at companies like ourselves or VBOX or others offering these pay-as-you-go solutions, we're still not reaching all of those people. Even by financing a tier one solar home system for you know a year or more, there's a lot of people that cannot afford that. I don't know the exact amount, but probably somewhere between 
30 to 50%, depending on the, the country of the population cannot afford even a pay-as-you-go tier one solarium system. So subsidies are required. Um, and this is known by the industry. Actually, we have, we're issuing an updated industry opinion in favor of these, what we call uh, demand-side subsidies or, or subsidies that are meant to reduce the price to the end customer. In the past, we were resistant to it. We didn't want market distortion, but now we've realized they're necessary. And I think the the most common way that these are deployed is through what's called results-based financing. It just means like for each unit you sell, there's a defined amount of money that you get as a company. And you know, in the, in the case of a demand-side subsidy, you're supposed to be passing that on as a, a lower price to the, the customer. So essentially, it's providing the end customer subsidy, but through the companies selling the products. And actually, a really good example of, of this is what's now happening in, in Nigeria, where just last week, Rhea has announced a demand-side subsidy component to their existing RBF program, and they've really increased the subsidy values. I think it'll drive a, a step change in deployment of uh, Tier 1 through 4 systems in, in the country. And Emily might be able to speak a lot more towards that because Odyssey is the one managing that platform. Yeah, thanks, Carl. I was about to say, uh, Emily, I, I know you have a lot of experience with RBF, so would love to go to you next. If anyone is interested in making the case against subsidies, because I think there's a lot of strong support for subsidies and very good reasons as well, would love to to see if there are any opposing uh, perspectives from that side. But Emily, over to you too. Yeah, I probably can't help on the, the case <laughs> of opposing subsidies, although I do oppose subsidies that aren't delivered efficiently because the one of the biggest challenges we've seen with grant programs in the past is that they, they're they not reliable and uh, streamlined enough for operators or for companies to fully depend on them and for investors to depend on them. So what we're trying to do with Odyssey is make it a very transparent, streamlined, and consistent process to get those performance-based grants so that you know companies like Delight can go to their financiers and say, we know that if we do this, we will get this subsidy. So like, come in, investor, come in alongside the subsidy, make your investment with the, with the confidence that um, this is part of our business model. And so, you know, there, there's a number of elements that make that possible. We uh, Odyssey plays a role sort of on the technology side to ensure that developers can come to our platform, enter the data that's required, know when they're going to get their subsidy, and the process is as streamlined as possible. We are also relying on sort of direct data polls in order to enable some of these demand side subsidies. So we can, and, and Rhea, for example, is, is using this technology, but we can pull data directly from, you know, company sales systems, run numbers on it and spit out kind of, okay, here's the subsidy that is re- required for this company. And that's just streamlined processes quite a bit as well, because the alternative to doing that is governments making phone calls to customers to confirm whether or not a system was sold, which as you can imagine, increases the cost of the subsidy and, and slows it down. So yeah, those are those are my thoughts on results-based financing. But I actually had my hand raised because we're engaged now with a new form of financing in the sector that I forgot to mention, I think is quite interesting, which is renewable energy credits from distributed projects. So there's two forms that we've been seeing in the sector. One is just uh, distributed energy RECs, DRECs, and another one is called Peace Renewable Energy Credits. So it's specifically for systems that uh, energy systems in conflict areas that are you know promoting more stability and, and peace in those communities. 
fees. And this is a great way to get corporates involved in financing these projects because, you know, large tech companies are seeing Microsoft and Google are buying these recs for their own operations and essentially financing distributed renewables in Africa. Super exciting. It's, it's pretty early days. We're um, working with these organizations to provide the tech that they'll need to measure the production of the, of the distributed assets to generate the recs. But I, I think there's a lot of promise there. Great. Yes. Thank you, Emily. And actually, I think that's something that, Amory, you mentioned in your introduction as well, that carbon credits were part of your financing structure. And I believe, Carl, you mentioned the same thing too, but would love to hear from you, Amory, and if there are any other financing mechanisms you, you want to throw into the hat. It's definitely like, I think, DREX, PREX, or, uh, or carbon credits in general are probably a part of the solution. I think, you know, we need to see if those prices will stabilize. You know, they have like gone through a few waves here. Uh, in the past, at the moment, we haven't used too much of it because the time to set up a program is uh, quite long. But I think that it will be very important uh, in the future. On the subsidy, I was quite interested to hear about uh, the new RIA subsidy. I think there is some really good systems that we've, we've been experiencing. For example, in Togo, there's a program called the CISO program where we uh, basically get a subsidy payment based on directly on our customer payments, you know, and so... We have the mobile money gateway integrated with the government directly, and they're able to see based on customer payments, we get money. So because that's the whole change of subsidy, you want to spend it efficiently and make sure that it's spent on people benefiting from uh, energy. Moving on a bit from subsidy, I think like some of the things that are really needed in terms of getting to universal energy access is probably like bigger and easier to get of balance sheets facilities that can be set up uh, across the sector. So I think that's the other big part, you know, like, of course, you know, subsidy, but you will still need to finance your assets, you know, to, to a large extent. And I think we're talking a lot about energy, but, you know, we're thinking about like electricity. I think there is a lot more to that. There is, uh, you know, cooking that comes in and there is access to a lot of other products and services. And I think companies like uh, Delight or Bbox are very well suited, you know, with the help of like the platforms and the lenders, etc., to build those credit models and get have really good insights about those customers to give access to just financing of uh, a ton of different products that's, that will increase the welfare. So it's interesting how this story is uh, probably becoming a lot more than solar, but a lot of about access to goods and services and, and financing in general. And uh, I, I find that super motivating about what we're doing at the moment. And I think links back to the discussion that Michael already opened up around productive energy use and financing capabilities too. So we'd love to move there next. Raghav, wanted to pass over to you if you had anything else to add on this topic first. Just very quickly on subsidies, and maybe I can kind of offer part of a counter view to that as well. <laughs> so totally, like I, I, I don't dis- disagree at all that subsidies are definitely required. And, you know, the success is based on how efficiently they can be delivered and how streamlined the process is. But I just wanted to add that as importantly, it's about subsidy design and like who are the intended recipients of these subsidies. So in results-based financing as well, you know, which is an intervention where payments are made once the agreed upon results are achieved and they're verified. What are those agreed upon results? Is it, you know, how do you identify who are the people who are kind of worthy of those subsidies? I think that's where kind of the important question comes up. And that's, again, one item that Nithyo is trying to, to address by, you know, intermediating 
in such subsidies or, or grant capital by being able to assess the end user's ability to, to repay and directing subsidies to those who actually need it as opposed to disrupting business models which would otherwise also have been commercially viable. So it seems we have a consensus, at least across the panel, that subsidies are necessary because, frankly, no other country on earth has ever reached 100% electrification without some form of subsidy or government support. But the design, the implementation and the execution is is really critical to make sure they're fair and have the right impacts. And I think that's a, a great transition to think about the SDG 7 and universal energy access for all. It's a pretty timely week, I would say, to have this discussion now, given the backdrop of COP26 and the various discussions around the $100 billion commitments that have been hoped for for developing or emerging economies. And the SDG 7 in particular, we committed to achieve them by 2030. Would be curious to hear from our panelists. Are we tracking well against this from each of your perspectives? Do you think we're going to hit the 2030 target? And if not, when do you think we might reach that target for SDG 7? And happy to start perhaps with Amory. I think you mentioned this is an area of interest for you. I mean, I think, I think we touched already a lot uh, about the solutions. You know, I think it's not, there's no, a magic wand that is going to, that's going to solve these problems. Most of the solutions are already exists, you know, like subsidies are not new. They've been used for hundreds of years to electrify countries. Off balance sheet facilities are not new as well. It's just the scale, you know, and the commitment that we put behind it. You know, when you've just come out of, uh, the COVID, uh, couple of years, last couple of years that we've had and we saw the amount of capital that has been released to kind of keep the economy alive or to do, the sheer push for vaccine programs, you know, I think it just shows, you know, that uh, it is just not as much commitment uh, towards energy access. And I think all the solutions are there, technological, policy, financial already exist. I think they just need to be scaled a lot, a lot bigger. And, uh, and that's how we're going to get it. But there's no, not yet that big commitment to unlock, you know, the $1 billion or $10 billion that uh, the, uh, needed and it's still a very small amount to really scale uh, renewables uh, in Africa. So do you uh, think so we're on, on track and anyone else think we're... No, I mean, at the moment we're not on, on track yeah. at all, you know, but we're all hoping, you know, that's at the start of the hockey stick, you know, and that uh, the capital is going to come and, uh, and people are going to be behind the solutions that exist. Great, Carl, what do you think? Yeah, I think that we'll see some step changes in the next five years or so around capital deployment in, in this sector, especially with the off-balance sheet financing facilities that Amari was, was referencing. I think you'll see a lot of countries within Africa hitting these targets of, of universal electrification, places like Kenya, places like maybe Nigeria, now that they're really committing with, with Rea to put some serious subsidies behind this. So I think you'll see certain countries in Africa getting up to, you know, 99, 100% electrification. Rwanda is another good example. They'll, they'll definitely hit it before the end of the, the decade. But I think if you're talking about SDG 7, which requires universal electrification across all countries, I just don't see it happening in places like Central African Republic or Chad or even Niger over that time horizon, because I think all the focus is going to be on the lower hanging fruit in, in countries like Kenya, Nigeria, you know, even DRC, which 
you know, a huge off-grid population, very difficult from just getting around the country from a logistics perspective, but a lot of focus and attention on that country. So maybe we get there in DRC, but no one's, no one talks about Central African Republic. No one talks about Chad. No one talks about a lot of these other countries that, you know, they might be affected by conflict or other things like that. So I, I don't think we'll achieve SDG seven by 2030. I do think we'll have a lot of interesting things happening over the next decade that will get us, you know, a decent way along that, that path. And, and we might see SDG seven achieved across many countries across Africa and probably most countries across Asia and Americas. But I think there's just these, there'll be pockets that will remain that are just very, very difficult to address because of conflict, you know, low population density, you know, lack of local markets for these kind of products, etc. Yeah, so that's kind of my my take. As for when we'll get there, I don't know, maybe 2040. I don't know. <laughs> Hard to tell. Hopefully. Sounds good. Cool. SDG 7, I think, is uh, the full access of clean energy, but it includes also clean cooking, which uh, probably sets us back another 10 years or further. <laughs> yeah. An additional challenge, to be sure. Yeah. yeah. Vargas, are you in line with that? So this is one issue I, I struggle with on a daily basis when financing operators were trying to, you know, promote SDG 7. And I agree with Amory about the requirement of scaling such debt capital through securitization structures or off-balance sheet structures. But also more importantly, I think this the scaling up would only happen once you have private commercial capital coming in. Right now, I see the industry, whether directly or indirectly, is dependent on multilaterals, on development agencies and you know concessional capital coming in from those parties. There's still very little capital coming in from true commercial players, from you know commercial banks, if I was to say, or commercial investors, you know, private equity companies, venture funds, um, other corporates. But but even then, just to go a step further, the industry is highly fragmented, right? You have you have the big players like the D lights, the B boxes, the M Copas, and the green light planets of the world. Yes, those those entities can access of balance sheet financing. But then you have much smaller companies, which still form a large chunk of this sector. So just to use some Gogla metrics, the affiliate entities, which are those registered with Gogla, only account for 50% of the total systems installed. The remaining 50% are kind of companies that are not even listed on, on the Gogla member list. And those companies are getting access to capital for them as a distant dream, let alone off balance sheet financing or kind of a funky securitization structure. So I think that's still kind of many years to go. And that's where, you know, the role of technology and getting some standardization across credit risk assessment is critical. But also what is equally important is the issue of what I call a standby servicer, right? If a company has hundreds or thousands of, of systems installed and Nithio as an investor or as a debt provider finances that company and, and tomorrow because the company was unable to manage its operations well or to keep its costs low or whatever other reasons it goes down, how do we ensure that the portfolio of receivables that Nithio finances or helps other investors finance actually continues 
getting repaid and someone else, a standby servicer can come in and continue collecting on those repayments because the end users might still be good for the money. The systems are still working, you know, just because the operator might not be solvent. How do we solve that problem? So that's one kind of key issue. And I think access to information and some kind of standardization across credit risk assessment, which is kind of both objectives that Nithyo is working towards. And, and we currently do offer solutions on that front is key. And then one other point that Michael made previously is around local currency financing. The vast majority, of, I think almost all of the financing today is coming from kind of dollar or hard currency investors. And yes, there do exist ways to hedge such hard currency loans uh, or even innovative structures that local banks do offer, uh, but they are not always available or aren't available for the tenors or aren't always as liquid or, you know, the pricing is just prohibitive for even the bigger kind of more established players to access. So that's another thing that would be required for achieving scale in the industry. Great. Thank you. And I'll pass it over to Emily in a second to share her thoughts on that as well. But just wanted to encourage the audience to put any questions you have for the panelists over to the Q&A or the chat box. It would be great to share some of the questions that you may have here in the last 10 to 15 minutes. But Emily, over to you as well. Yeah, just wanted to chime in with the perspective about bigger systems, mini grids rather than solar home systems, since um, that's where we focus and I don't want to present too much of a discouraging picture, but I think it's even more discouraging than than the solar home system sector. We're just not seeing nearly enough project finance going into the to the sector in order to scale mini grids at the rate that we need to if we're going to meet SDG seven goals. There are some promising movements for sure. I mean, that just this year, Nigeria launched a debt facility from the Central Bank of Nigeria to fund projects. We're seeing players like the Development Finance Corp in the U.S. start to look at, at mini grids, but there's so much more project finance that's required if we're going to get bigger systems built and deployed at the clip that's required. I think, you know, the number I have in my head is that we need 200,000 mini grids in Africa. Odyssey, essentially, we, we collect data from all operating mini grids through some of our, um, programs that we finance and some of the initiatives that we, um, manage the data for. And we're talking, you know, we're in the hundreds. So that's a, that's a big gap between a few, you know, a few hundred mini grids to 200,000. So certainly moving in the right direction, but a long way to go to, to 2030. Yeah. I wanted to add a comment to Emily's, but, um, I definitely don't think from a, from a ground view that we will get there, but for a slightly different reason. And that's the fact that every decade for the next three decades, there'll be about 330 million more Africans. The population is going to double by 2050. So as fast as we're going now, we're still lagging behind just population growth. And so all the points that my colleagues have mentioned about the challenges exist. Another one that is there is that, and arguably Africa is the only continent that, that has this challenge. The majority of the initiatives that are on the ground are not being implemented by people from the ground. And what I'm saying is there's a huge need for capacity development to understand the technologies. You don't have enough local project developers who can tinker around with with solar technology. It's fairly straightforward technology. But if something breaks, you, you find somebody's using it as a tray. I'm just being facetious. But I mean, the problem with installing something. And again, there's great technology now that you can track your system and its performance, particularly mini grids, even solar home systems. But if it is far from town and there's no local technician who can repair, 
Sometimes, again, we're getting better with it. Parts. You need to have parts on standby. So a big push, and I, I don't see this really, is the training and education of Africans to understand renewable energy technologies so that they can now start being much more efficient in terms of deploying them. So that's a gap. And then the population growth is a gap. And now colleagues talked about all the funds that are flowing towards post-COVID. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that for me, and this is really where the mini grids struggle, because a, a home lighting system, I'm lighting for my family. A mini grid almost by design needs more than just a, a domestic user. You need a, an industrial commercial user. So you need that, again, productive use of energy focus. And, and I almost call it economic development use of energy because productive use of energy has a broad term. So, you know, I could have a blender and make juices in my house. It's going to help my livelihood, but it's not necessarily going to use a lot more energy and it's not going to be something that necessarily transforms my village. But there are technologies that you could use irrigation, cooling, you know, cold chain development, processing that could be developed. And again, that's why I was saying that you need that nexus between those who are putting money into the agriculture, understanding that if I add this electricity, because electricity is a tool at the end of the day, and there are other uses, there's cooking, there's uh, solar thermal for heating. But by and large, with solar, we're talking about it's, a, it's an electricity tool. But most people who are getting it don't know how to use it to really transform their universe, if you will. So they don't have the money. They don't earn the money to get the payback period that you need to make it commercially viable. So anyway, these are some some thoughts that I'm not so much a pessimist about the time frame because what I liked about the time frame, still like, is it gives you a target. It, it does mobilize people to think about your shoe. If you don't define it, don't measure it, can't get there. And I think that's I think that's a great connection to a question that we've been asked from Marie Gallagher from the Q and A on how do we prioritize community resilience and independence when expanding for deployment of global energy access. So, Carl, I don't know whether you want to refer to Michael's comments as well, or also discuss what Marie has just asked. Yeah, well, I just wanted to make a, a very quick comment on on what Michael's saying, which is to say that you know SDG seven. It's it's a very minimum bar, right? SDG seven just says like everyone has at a minimum tier one energy access, and so even if we achieve SDG seven, we're still not achieving any of those things that Michael's talking about in terms of that level of of economic development. You know, it's it's not saying anything about like okay, we have a certain amount of processing facilities in country, we have cold chain, we have all these other things. So just wanted to emphasize that you know I know we're we had to set you know, some sort of specific target and goal. And we chose that to be, you know, minimum of tier one energy access. But, you know, we can celebrate once we achieve that, but there's still a long way to go after that to get productive use and other things on top of that. So I was just going to make that that comment. Great, thank you. Is there anyone else from the panel who wants to comment on productive energy use? Because I think it's a huge topic for the industry at the moment and seen by many certainly as a great opportunity to accelerate our attempts at electrification while supporting economic development, as Michael says. Any other comments from our panelists? But I think it links to the question uh, that was asked uh, just before about community resilience. Yeah. You know, I think yeah, those productive usage uh, are incredibly important. And our customers only have a certain size of wallets. And for all of us that's going to more financing more and more appliances and, and things in the lives of our customers, 
looking at those those appliances that allow them to have more income in the future is incredibly important. And of course, you know, some of those will be directly electricity related, but some might be agriculture related and then not necessarily electricity. So yeah, super important. And I think we'll target that a little bit, you know, to be able to make sure that our customers are more resilient, able to repay, continue paying for electricity. Great. Thanks, Amory. We've received another question from the audience around the financing of manufacturing. Is there any talk of moving that from China or are we still continuing to rely on China for manufacturing a lot of these solar panels and equipment? Not sure if anyone in the panel is looking into that. I imagine probably B-Box and D-Light may be thinking about that, but I think Emily, you also have something to add. Yeah, just really quickly, um, this year we launched an aggregated procurement business. So it's a, a part of our platform where we aggregate ordered equipment orders from developers and place larger orders with suppliers to bring down the costs of PV and, and storage and some of the other components of, of mini grids. Mostly it is still suppliers in China, but there's an interesting or there's a there's sort of a new push to have some of this manufacturing shift to the continent in Africa and primarily in, in Nigeria, we're seeing programs through the government to subsidize or to provide debt to local manufacturers. I mentioned the the Central Bank of Nigeria fund that launched earlier this year called Solar Power Niger. And there's a component of it that that does support local manufacturing um, or contract manufacturing of uh, PV and, and inverters and some other key components. So yeah, really, I'm really interested to see what happens over time and if that picks up. But uh, it's definitely something that, that we're looking into right now as part of our procurement business. Yeah, I think if you look at what what China has managed to do in terms of the ecosystem they've built around, you know, especially solar, I mean, all the different components you can get from within a very small area. So it's just so cheap there because if you want to go manufacture somewhere else, you still have to get all the components from places in China, essentially, for the most part. And so it's cheaper and more efficient to just do it right where all where you're sourcing all the components from. So that's why there's been such momentum for China to continue to be like the best place to manufacture cheap solar products. That being said, I mean, there's definitely been pushes from other governments, for example, in India to produce locally, and they've instituted policies to promote that by increasing the the tariffs on imports and, and giving some incentives for producing locally. So actually, we are doing some local manufacturing in, in India now, for example, but I think at the end of the day, what we're looking at is value for money for our customers. And so we want to give them the highest quality product at the most affordable price. And right now, it's hard to do that without sourcing from China. If I try to do that in Africa today, I'm going to give them a lower quality product at a higher price just because of the dynamics today. So really, at the end of the day, our focus is more on like what is best for our end customer rather than necessarily pushing for production out, outside of China. Great. And Michael, we've got two minutes left, so I'll give you the last word on this topic. Well, I was just going to say that in South Africa, where we have a very strong grid-tied program, the Renewable Energy Independent Power Procurement Program, local content was built into that some years ago. And we actually, we, we've had policy hiccups, but we actually were able to get some Chinese companies to set up Really, it's the assembly. It's not uh, full-on manufacturing. But I think that's the steps that will, will happen, that a Nigeria, a South Africa um, in the north, in Egypt, or in Algeria will say, we've got some of the components, we've got some of the expertise, 
and we have a market. So we want to manufacture or assemble on the continent, but it will take 30 years to, to try and emulate the integrated value chain that China has today. You, you, and because technology is changing so fast, even if you set up one, it'll be out of date and, and you'll be out competed, if you will, just because of, of the fact that, you know, it's like the Detroit of, of the world in, in solar technology sitting in, in, in China right now. But I do see more assembly happening with different components over time in the next decade. Great. Thank you. And I think that wraps up our panel. We're right on time. So thank you all again for taking the time to join us today. It's been a great conversation and I hope the audience has enjoyed it and learned something from it too.